You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Now, as we return to the Gospel of Mark this morning, we're going to see Mark uh, stepping away from focusing on the faith of the disciples as he has been recently. And we're going to witness a rather intense encounter of Jesus with hypocrisy, okay? And through our text today, we're going to see a side of, of Jesus that we perhaps don't often think about or embrace, uh, that in t- at times in his life and in his ministry, Jesus gets cranked up. He gets fired up. We're going to see that here this morning. And so that goes against all those Renaissance paintings, the effeminate Jesus, Jesus gets angry. Just as the God of the Old Testament had a holy and righteous and jealous side, so Jesus, while he was on earth, also had righteous anger, and his anger was kindled because of hypocrisy. And as we see Jesus dealing with the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees today, you and I are going to be reminded of our own propensity to hypocrisy. Brothers and sisters, hypocrisy is alive and well in our bones. It's a part of our spiritual DNA. But today, God's word, by his spirit, we get the grace to do a spiritual checkup. We get to look upon our hearts and examine ourselves for any indwelling hypocrisy and prepare our hearts for any coming temptation towards hypocrisy. So Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, that is to Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came, or when they would come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained for me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Let's pray. Lord, we, we need your help. This morning, Lord, we need your spirit's 
help. Lord, you sent the Spirit to be our comforter, to be our helper, to illuminate the Word of God into our hearts. And so, Lord, this morning we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would show us exactly what you want us to know. And that by knowing it, we would be changed. Lord, would your spirit impress upon our hearts, pushing the words of God into our hearts so that we would not sin against you. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have to have your word open before us. How so many have died and have spilt blood so that we could read the words of God in our own tongue. Lord, let us never forget that and always treasure that. And so we pray for your hand today. Move me aside, preach to your people. I bring nothing, you bring everything. Lord, we trust you this morning. Speak to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, we just read about the hypocrisy of Jesus confronting uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, and we may be tempted to think that this problem is something kind of foreign to us, right? That's something that is distant, that's something that's separated by, by language, by culture, by time. Maybe we don't think that this applies to our lives today, but as we dive into the text, we observe the hypocrisy uh, that has our Lord all fired up. We need to know that hypocrisy is closer than we would like to think. As I stated earlier, hypocrisy is in our bones. It's a part of our fallen DNA. And the, the scribes and the Pharisees aren't alone in this sin. You and I are prone to it. We're prone to it. And so we need to look at this text within the context and then apply it to our context today. And we're going to do that for self-examination and preparation. And so as we look at this first section, let's remember the context at hand. Up to this point, right, Jesus and his disciples have been relentlessly ministering throughout all of Galilee. Remember that, that Jesus has been healing thousands of people of diseases, casting out many spirits, raising people from the dead, preaching with authority. And just previous to our text, we see that Jesus miraculously fed fifteen to 20,000 people on this mountain, basically from nothing. And then that was followed by a crucial lesson of faith for his disciples out on the Sea of Galilee as Jesus came down walked on the water and revealed his glory to his disciples and calmed the seas. Now at this point in his ministry, Jesus and his disciples are famous. The news about them has reached the outer reaches of Jewish society. Everyone who is anyone would know about Jesus and his miraculous deeds. Thousands and thousands have been following him, even his enemies. Now, along with those thousands and thousands of people, we have the scribes and we have the Pharisees. They're paying attention to him. And they are extremely concerned about his influence over the people. And so we see these Jewish experts coming from Jerusalem like they have before to investigate Jesus and his disciples, which takes us to verses 1 to 5. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him 
with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then we see Mark go on to explain. Remember, Mark is writing to a Gentile audience, and so he's writing to them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Brothers and sisters, the Pharisees and the scribes are imposing their tradition upon others as law. And so our first point of application today is that we need to keep our convictions in check because we will be tempted to impose them on others as well. These Pharisees and the scribes, they were experts. Experts when it came to the Jewish law, knowing the Old Testament scriptures. But clearly, their charge in verse 5 shows us that they were believing that the disciples of Jesus were breaking holy laws. They said that they were eating with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then Mark goes on in verse 3, like I said, to explain to his Gentile audience and us this morning what was going on here. And they said that the Pharisees and all the Jews, really important, all the Jews don't eat unless they wash their hands properly. And then verse 4, they come home from the market, right? You're, they're out shopping for food. They make, they make sure they don't eat unless they wash. They may have come in contact with a Gentile. And then verse 4 goes on to show that they take it even further than just their hands. Uh, from cups to pots to copper vessels and then even their dining couches. And they do this to remain undefiled. They had to wash and wash and wash and wash. Now I'm pretty sure... Some of us, or none of us here this morning, own a dining couch. But I'm sure some of us this morning have dined on our couch, right? Uh, and some of you neat freaks out there are, are, are thanking me for the reminder to go home and to vacuum the couch, right? Is that what this is about? No, it's not. What's going on here is, is Mark is giving, giving us some instructions to... Uh, to be watching for temptation. It's, it's not a manual for housekeeping. It's not even a manual for, for hygiene. They're not washing merely for hygiene. All of this washing and cleansing goes way back to the very uh, beginning and, and in the Exodus uh, particularly. So around 1,500 years earlier, God gave cleansing rituals for the priests. For the priests of the tabernacle, Exodus 40, verse 12, Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water. This is a part of this, these washing rituals. In Leviticus 22, if you look at 22, there's a lot in there about cleansing. But we're looking at verses 2 to 3, Leviticus 22, verses 2 to 3. Speak to Aaron and his sons again, so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, if any 
any one of all of your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. And so our Lord is holy. And he was extremely particular as to how he was to be worshipped, how the priests would, would come before his presence, and they would have to be ritually cleansed in order to intercede for the people. But biblically speaking, these rules were only for the priests. Verse 3 says, The Pharisees and all the Jews in our text today do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. And then it says, holding to the tradition of the elders. So the problem here is in that word tradition. Five times. Five times we see tradition. Tradition of the elders in our text today. So what is this tradition of the elders? It's not a book of the Bible. Without getting too much into the history of it all. What you need to know is that the, the tradition of the elders was not something written down. It was an oral tradition, something passed down throughout the generations. It was extra biblical, right? Not in the Bible. It was an oral interpretation of how the Torah, right, the first five books of the Bible were to be applied to God's people. Uh, the Jews at that time, they, they believed it was a fence around the Torah to keep us from violating the Torah. And so this was an oral tradition. And, and it really actually began around the Babylonian exile in about 600 BC. And so this has been around for hundreds of years, and it was growing, and it was being added to. It, it was an interpretation of the law, and they kept adding layers and layers and layers for the Jewish people. Now, at the time of Jesus, the tradition of the elders was so ingrained in the Jewish religion that it was regarded as equal to God's word. These ceremonial cleansings, these washings, was a really big deal in the oral tradition. Actually, when, when you look at the Mishnah, which is, which is written in, in about 2 A.D., about 25% of the mission is all about cleansing. It's a big deal. And so then we see here that all of the Jews are following it. So it's no longer just the priests who are obeying the word of God. All the Jews are following this tradition of the elders. And then comes the charge from the Pharisees and the scribes. Verse 5. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? And so what's important to see here is that these charges being brought against the disciples had nothing to do with God's word. The charges being brought to Jesus and his disciples were not being guided by scripture, but they are based on somebody's interpretation and application of God's word. It wasn't the written word of God. You see, their, their traditional convictions were being elevated so high that they were imposing those traditions as laws equal to God's word. So how does that apply to us this morning? 
Is this washing and cleansing something that we deal with in our everyday lives? Do we have elders standing at the doors outside of there making sure that you're washed and cleansed as you come into worship? Of course not. So how does this apply? Well, I think we apply it through principle. And the principle applies in many different ways. The reality here is that the problem of hypocrisy is not just a problem with the scribes and Pharisees. It's a universal problem of humanity. It's a part of our sinful nature. Friends, the the human heart, left to its own devices, loves to add, loves to add layers and layers and layers on top of God's word. In In our flesh, we are experts at this. This is the the natural outflow of our fallen nature. We are good at imposing our convictions, our traditions onto others. We do it all the time. We do this in Christian circles as well. And we do it in many different ways. So as the Jews added biblical layers and layers, defining how someone is to be pure and to be holy, we also do that as well. Just think about that for a moment. In your mind right now, what does the ideal Christian look like? What do they look like? Do they look a certain way? Do they dress a certain way? Are they perpetually happy? Are they a person that never struggles with life? that everything is awesome? Is it a person who, who never sins? Is it a person who is hyper-spiritual? Do you sometimes think that there's tears in the faith, right? There's nominal Christians and then there's super-Christians? That somehow these people have arrived at some kind of hyper-spiritual state or have, have received some kind of special favor with God? Friends, when we impose extra-biblical standards to the only standard, and then we impose them on others, we join the Pharisees, we join the scribes in their hypocrisy. Let's give you an example. Well, back in the 1800s, there was a movement in Christianity called the Holiness Movement. Included the Wesleyans and the Methodists and and the Nazarenes. And then later, it it filtered down into Pentecostalism. And this movement in the 1800s, some of the leaders in that movement began to teach about sanctification, growing in holiness. And they began to teach that a Christian could enter a state of purity, a state of perfect sinlessness through some kind of secondary, super-spiritual experience. And so this led to a fascination with spiritual experiences. And out of that kind of created a two-tier type of Christianity within their movement. Those who have not experienced that and those who have, right? Sinful Christians and sinless Christians. And then they ended up imposing that standard on top of the word of God. 
Another example would be uh, some certain fundamentalist movements within Christianity, right? Prescribing what kind of length a dress needs to be, how, how long hair needs to be, rules about makeup, rules about modesty being mandated, creating some kind of a, a legalistic, cookie-cutter, external definition of what a godly Christian looks like. Now, we're not a part of the holiness movement or we're not, a, we're not a fringe fundamentalist group either, but there are still ways that we can be like the Pharisees and the scribes today when we are prone to imposing extra-biblical standards on each other. And I want you to hear me well. Traditions are good. Convictions are good. And what I mean by that is when we read God's word, when we hear it taught, and the Holy Spirit convicts us of an area in our life that needs work, and then we respond and make some kind of decision in our own life that helps us grow in our holiness, like for example, cutting the cable, cutting the internet, maybe homeschooling our kids, clothing choices, and on and on and on. Some of these decisions are really good, and they're really good for you. They really are. But the moment that we take that conviction, and we then apply it to somebody else, and we look across the aisle at our Christian neighbor, and we impose it upon their life, we are no better than the scribes and the Pharisees. And so we need to be careful. We need to be careful to keep our convictions in check because we'll be tempted to impose them on others. And so as these scribes and these Pharisees charge Jesus' disciples with breaking these purity laws, Jesus, knowing the human heart and our propensity towards legalism and hypocrisy, and him also knowing these so-called experts, these Pharisees, these scribes, they were the ones who knew the word of God. And so we see his anger kindled. They're the ones closest to the word of God. And he responds to their charges, not by answering them, but by turning the focus upon their hypocrisy. Verse 6, he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Those are words you don't want the Lord Jesus Christ to be aiming towards you. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, love that, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then Jesus adds, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Brothers and sisters, we need to keep our hearts engaged because we'll be tempted to be pretenders. Jesus, the God of heaven on earth, does he need to answer to anybody? Does he need to answer man's religious accusations? Especially in light of this hypocrisy, this legalism that he is seeing them charge and charging towards his disciples. Jesus gets fired up. 
He goes after the jugular. This isn't your meek and mild Jesus. He's fired up because the real problem with these Pharisees and scribes is not their dedication. They were some of the most dedicated people in society. The real problem was their dead, cold hearts. You can just feel the righteous anger in his words. He says, you hypocrites. Oh, how far the guardians of God's word have fallen. He calls them hypocrites. Which in in Greek theater at that time means an actor who puts on a mask and plays his heart or plays his part without sincerity. One who, who pretends. And he's saying that the scribes and the Pharisee, Pharisees, the ones who were regarded as the holiest men in society, are in fact great pretenders of the faith. And then he takes them to the very scriptures that they are rejecting. And he says, well did, or if you have an NASB, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Ironically, the prophet Isaiah, a prophet that they would hold in such high esteem, is revealed to be prophesying about them. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. And then Jesus summarizes the problem. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the the tradition of men. You see, these Pharisees and these scribes look pretty good from the outside, but they were actors. They were pretenders. You should have seen the clothes that they would wear. They had all the holy words to say. They knew how to dress. They knew what to say, but their hearts were hard. They were cold. They were unmoved, and they were far from the true and living God. So friends here this morning, I don't know where you're at this very moment in your life. But what I know is that we all struggle in our faith at times. We sometimes find ourselves in this same boat as the Pharisees. Just kind of going through the motions, right? Putting on that smile. Playing the part. Putting on the mask. And somebody asks you how you're doing, you say good, but your life is falling apart. Friends, in our flesh, when we are left to our own devices... We are experts at pretending. We are experts at putting on masks. Hypocrisy is in our bones. If something's broken within us, we just cover it up. Or even worse, we actually think our problems can be fixed by our own efforts. Trusting in what we can do. Making changes to the outside, right? Looking the part, saying the right things, going to church, going to small group, looking like the Christian. But Jesus said, our lips are saying the right things, 
but our hearts are far from him. And instead of repenting of our hard-heartedness, we run harder, we run faster to the traditions of men. Clean yourself up. Try harder. Be strong. Follow that self-help book. Trust that secular psychology. Learn those seven habits. Think those positive thoughts. Smile, be happy. Like the Pharisees, we're prone to just trusting ourselves. Trusting in our own, our own works. Trusting in what we can do. So Jesus' words for the Pharisees and the scribes at times are the words for us. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And so let me ask you, did you get up this morning and just put on your Christian outfit? Did you paint on that Christian face? Did you practice your Christian smile in the mirror? Is there a beating spiritual heart in your chest today? Or is your desire just to be here to please somebody else? Are the songs that we are singing just empty words in your mouth? Is this sermon that is being preached the most boring thing that you endure every week? We need to think about that for a moment. Or how about this? Did you wake up this morning and begrudgingly give yourself to the duty of reading your Bible? Did you unwillingly close your eyes and spend a few minutes in distracted prayer? Did you load the kids in the car wishing that you were actually just staying home and binging on your favorite show or going to the mountains because it's sunny outside or watching sports, whatever it may be? And then when the preacher talks about reading your Bible and, and prayer, you smile and nod. Trusting the fact that you read your Bible this morning, that you prayed this morning, but yet your heart was so distracted, so tempted, so far from God. Friends, according to Jesus, a disconnected heart is hypocrisy. It's pretending. It's acting. It's putting on a mask. It's a dead heart. 1 Samuel 16, chapter 7, verse B. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He sees it all. He is not fooled by outward external appearances. So is this, is this you this morning? Is your heart a million miles away from the grace of God? Are you trusting in your appearances? Are you trusting in your works? Are you trusting in the good things that you think that you can do? Why are you here? Why do you profess the name of Christ? What's moving you? Augustine said this, The problem with the hypocrite is his motivation. 
He does not want to be holy. He only wants to seem to be holy. He is more concerned with his reputation for righteousness than about actually becoming righteous. The approbation of men matters more to him than the approval of God. Friends, there's a reason that the term Pharisee is still used today in our world to describe those kinds of peoples who do say one thing and do another. Even our secular society uses that word. Same with the word hypocrite. But for us, by the grace of God, through his word and by his spirit, we need to heed this indictment against the Pharisees and scribes. If our hearts are far from God this morning, we need to cry out to him in repentance and faith. We need to ask him to remove that heart of stone from our flesh, as Ezekiel says. That the Lord would give us a heart of flesh. That we would ask him to put his spirit within us to cause us to walk in his ways. The authentic Christian life is not about blindly following. It's not about empty talking. It's not about washing the outside of the cup. It's not about heartless obedience. The Christian life is about trusting in what has been done. What has been done through the righteous life and the necessary death of Jesus Christ on the cross for you. And our motivation comes from that. The Christian heart is a grace-induced heart. It is a biblically-informed heart. It is a spirit-empowered heart. It is a gospel-motivated heart. It is a Christ-glorifying heart. And this is nothing that we can do in our own flesh. It's not until we come to the end of ourselves. And we abandon our self-righteous pretending that we will discover the delight of living for Jesus Christ with our hearts fully engaged. For many years, I walked in hypocrisy. I was brought up in the church. I went to youth group. I sang the songs. I got baptized. I professed the name of Jesus. But yet, when I was out of the watching eyes of my parents, and I was in my own world, I lived a life of secret and destructive sin. I gave myself to the lust of the world. I followed the path of the wicked, seeking my own sinful desires. I was a big hypocrite. I was a great pretender. Professing much, but possessing nothing. And this chased me throughout my teenage years and into my adulthood until the Lord boldly and graciously grabbed a hold of me and showed me my spiritual bankruptcy. That I was playing a part, that I was being the hypocrite, that I was headed towards destruction. And I, I learned that I couldn't serve two masters. And so my call for you this morning, adults, children, teenagers here this morning, if you hear my voice, if you hear these words, don't do what I did. 
Don't gamble with God's mercy. Don't presume upon his grace. Don't say one thing and do another. Don't listen to the lies of the world. Stop pretending. We need to seek the Lord and engage our hearts with this truth. As God said through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Engage your heart. And so we learn from the Pharisees that we will be tempted to impose our convictions on others and we'll also be tempted to heartlessly pretend and then as Jesus continues to call them out, we learn that we must keep our foundation biblical. Keep our foundation biblical because we'll be tempted to abandon the truth. Verse 9, he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Just hear the sarcasm there. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Verse 10, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. If you notice throughout our text today, there has been a progression of evil being revealed in the Pharisees and scribes. First, they revealed that their traditions were being elevated to Scripture, and then their hypocrisy revealed that their hearts were cold to the truth of God. And then lastly, we see here that their tradition was even trumping Scripture, making it void. When we reject God's word, as our only foundation, when we hold to extra-biblical rules and regulations, we're actually voiding God's truth, his only truth, in our life. God's word must always stand as the ultimate truth. But what we see here clearly in this last section is that Jesus shows the scribes and the Pharisees that their tradition of the elders is actually superseding it. And it's undermining the very word of God. And that's where we see this tradition of Corban. We don't really know what that is just by reading it. And so without getting too deep into it, Corban literally means devoted to God, as it shows in the brackets, or offering. Now, this tradition of Corban was a way that someone could dedicate their own land or their goods uh, to the temple as an offering to be inherited by the temple upon a person's death, which ultimately meant that it was dedicated to God and it couldn't be used for any other means, not even the care for one's parents. And so some sinful, greedy people would use this to sidestep the command to love and honor their parents. In the temple, the temple Judaizers, they knew all about that. 
And so what we're seeing here is man's tradition was overriding God's revealed truth. People were using it as a way to get around a command. For centuries, humanity has been trying to get around the clear teachings of God's word. Trying to get around the commands of scripture. And they do this by creating and holding to extra-biblical authority. For, for example, the Roman Catholic Church. They believe that when the Pope speaks on his throne, ex-cathedra, he speaks with papal infallibility. Which means that whatever he decrees is now held at an equivalency with Scripture. This goes against the doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone. We also see this with the Mormon cult as well. They don't hold the scripture alone. They say they believe in it, but they have three other books. The Book of Mormon, the Doctrine of the Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. And they use these to overrule and undermine the very word of God. We also see that with Seventh-day Adventists. They hold to the writings of Ellen G. White. They say that she is prophetically authoritative. And this spills out into many, many, many other sects of religion and cults. What we must understand is that that hypocrisy in our bones always makes its way out and we're prone to it. And that's why you see God's word being undermined and rejected and voided by so many people. And as much as these religions and cults get it wrong, we need to be suspicious of ourselves. We need to be suspicious of our own extra-biblical foundations. Some of these things that we hold to, some of the traditions we have, some of the beliefs we have, some of these legalisms that we're bent towards the rules that we impose. We need to get back to Scripture alone. Scripture is sufficient. It is perfect. It is inerrant. It is clear. It is holy. It is powerful. Why? Because God wrote it. This is his book to you. And if God wrote a book... How much more can we trust it? Every word in this book is trustworthy because God wrote it. 2 Peter 1.21 For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good word, every good work. And then this warning in Revelation 22, verse 18 to 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, the Bible, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this 
book. Scripture alone. The Holy Spirit wrote it. So brothers and sisters, what do we do with this? How do we heed this rebuke of Jesus to the Pharisees and the scribes? How How do we apply that to our life? How do we make sure that we don't void the word of God? Well, what we do is this. We need to be motivated by God's grace. We need to be informed by God's word. We need to be empowered by his spirit. We need to hold fast to this book alone. Let us not veer to the left or the right. Every jot and tittle is in there for a reason. Let's trust it as sufficient. Let's build our lives upon the foundation of Jesus Christ as revealed in this book. And all of this is done by God's grace. We need to keep our foundations biblical. In our flesh, on our own, apart from the Spirit, left to our own devices, we will abandon the truth. We will walk away from it. We need His Spirit and His grace to keep our convictions in check, to keep our hearts engaged, and to keep our foundations biblical. All to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we cast our eyes upon this moment of your life and your disciples and the scribes and the Pharisees and how foolish we think they are and how we see them making these grave mistakes of moving away from, their, from your word and, and adding traditions and, and holding traditions up to the same level as your word and then in, imposing them on other people, making void the word of God. Lord, we're reminded of ourselves. We are fallen. We are sinners. And so thank you for the reminder of that in our life. And it reminds us how much we need you. How much we need you by your grace and and by your spirit to, to cause us to walk in your ways. We need hearts that are transformed and connected to you, connected to your word. It's our only hope. So thank you for that reminder. And I pray that we would examine our our hearts as we go this week and that this would be preparing us for the days ahead. That even as Christians, in moments of struggle, we're struggling in our faith, we can be tempted towards these things as well. And so by your grace, by your spirit, by your word, keep us, Lord. Keep us connected to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.